today we got a new guest and an old guest. This episode is essentially part two of the episode I did with HTP Billy, which was episode 22. Um, so yeah, we talk about governance systems. Um, but my main guest this time around is Ronald. HDP does come in midway through the conversation and has plenty to add as well. But I'm mainly talking to Ronald. Uh, his handle is Ronald Pepe Fisher on Twitter or X. So yeah, this is another X space. I thought it was a really interesting conversation. I split it up into two parts because the second part is an open mic um, and things kind of go down a bunch of random rabbit holes in the second half. But we do touch on a bunch of interesting stuff and come to some interesting conclusions, I think. Uh, so definitely worth a listen if this sort of stuff is of interest to you. Uh, yeah, so here we go. Hey, hey, how's it going? Thanks for joining me. Hey, it's going well. Thank you. Right on. Um, cool. Well, so I wanted to have this basically be part two um, to a, a previous episode I had on my pod. So um, I'd like to kind of go through things in a bit of a chronological order here, uh, if that works for you. Yeah, sure. Do you want to invite people okay, or cool. just, so see, just wanna... see if people join? Oh, yeah. I mean, Feel free to invite anyone you want. Um, I was thinking we would just go through a couple, like a the main section before we open it up. But people are more than welcome to. Uh, I'd love to have a discussion like after if if that works for you. Yeah, sounds good. Cool. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, if you, um, yeah, I mean, let's just go ahead and get into it because anyone who comes up is going to have already heard about like what democracy is. But I think, I think it's good to start with that question of like, what is democracy to sort of like lay the groundwork for this conversation? Cause um, mainly just cause some of my listeners may not uh, <laughs> really understand the nuance of that question. Right. So I guess I'll, I'll just go ahead and ask, uh, ask you that question. What, what is democracy? Yeah, sure. And uh, just just for some context, what is kind of like the audience or uh, what is the theme of your podcast? So my podcast is primarily a philosophy centric theme, but it's definitely a bit of a like reactionary sort of vibe as well, because it's um, like a lot of the philosophy rabbit holes I go down are very much like quest questioning mainstream progressivism. Um, so I would say it's like it's basically directed towards the open minded progressive uh, or the more like, you know, right wing or reactionary person. Gotcha. Yeah, that's neat. Um, yeah. So I guess from my perspective, um, people people talk about democracy um, and uh, they, they, they can mean very different things because. You know, in, in Athens, you had democracy, but you had, let's say, 10 percent or less of people uh, participating in the political system uh, in any meaningful way. And, um, you know, obviously, I think people democracy today and, and throughout the 20th century generally means um, mass democracy, where you have uh, universal franchise or at least that's that's the goal. And that's, I think, what it tends towards. Um, I, I guess I'm, yeah, 
also more of the reactionary bent that I, I believe in kind of a cycle of political regimes. Um, so I see democracy fundamentally as kind of like a decadent phase uh, that is heralding, if not the winter, but kind of the fall season of a civilization. So uh, with, with that, I mean, I think, uh, I think when you have a mass democracy, and when you have uh, a republic that becomes corrupted as well, you have political elites who are trying to grab as much power as possible. So the way to do that in a democracy, in a mass democracy, is to demagogue the masses. And, and basically, uh, because most people aren't informed and they'll never be informed enough to really understand most political issues, you can just make these kind of emotional appeals and strike at the jealous nature of people that, oh, they have more than you in, in some way. And uh, I think this is why the progressives, uh, I mean, I'm getting off track. I don't know if you want to get into the progressive era in the U.S., but that, that's kind of my take on democracy. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't yeah, say I mean, what we have now is democracy, even though we have mass franchise. So, Yeah, 100%, man. So, yeah, that was great. That was a lot of what, it, what I was hoping to like lay out as the groundwork there. Um, definitely want to hear more of your thoughts on that front, but I'm sure we'll be getting into more of that as we go too. So I guess at this point, I'll just like throw in a little bit of my take or like kind of what I want to focus on, um, which is basically that the way I see it, democracy is essentially a transient force rather than an actual governance system, right? Because like, uh, the United States was designed essentially to be a form of an accountable monarchy, essentially. Uh, and then the de- like democracy is essentially just part of that accountability mechanism. Um, so I think when we start like seeing democracy in that light, the question for me becomes less like, should we have a democracy or not? Because that's kind of a meaningless question. It becomes more of like, what is the right balance of democracy to uh, essentially monarchy? Like, let's just assume assume monarchy because um, I've already gone down the ol- oligarchy rabbit hole, um, which we can totally touch on all that. But uh, if, if like that framing makes sense to you, um, that's kind of the direction I'd like to go with things here is like, because on the one hand, we could imagine like, a perfectly uh, accountable monarchy, which would basically be a perfect democracy, right? Um, where the whole democratic system works perfectly and the, th- there's a monarch at the top, but they're perfectly accountable to the system itself versus you could have more like old school monarchy, which would be like minimal democracy, um, where essentially the democratic force is reserved to literally like uh you know peasants rioting in the streets and like physical violence there is no system that actually supports um them to do anything but rebel physically so what are your thoughts on that yeah that's interesting and uh you mentioned the u.s system and kind of hamilton's vision of, of an elected monarch and stuff um when you said a perfect democracy uh would be or a monarchy is a perfect democracy. How do you mean by that? Like, would there be elections and then they'd be given absolute power for a limited time? Or you just have someone who 
he's always in charge who represents what's good for the people how do you how do you mean by that yeah 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 okay so the only point i was trying to make is like the two uh, sides of the spectrum of like how quote unquote democratic a system is right because there's always the democratic force but the question is what form does it take is the system like actually um, telling citizens they are empowered to play a role in it or not so much um, the specifics on what a quote unquote like perfect democracy what that could look like that's kind of what I want most of this conversation to be on so there is no short answer to that because you know, the conversation we had uh, the other day, which is why I was interested to keep that going, was a lot about like Curtis's vision, if there's any uh, validity to that, if there is some sort of like ideal um, democ democratic system that would presumably uh, involve like some crypt crypto uh, mechanisms um, to help out or not. So um i want to dig into like some of the specifics on what would a perfect democracy look like if like and and also like do these crypto tools actually um you know make new things possible or are they essentially just snake oil so that's kind of a big part of like my ultimate question for the conversation um but just in terms of like laying out what is democracy um i was just framing it out as like the two sides of the spectrum being uh, whether basically based on whether or not the system actually tells citizens they're empowered. Gotcha. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, that is, that is a tough question. <laughs> um, you know, I think, um, I think something Yarvin definitely gets right is uh, I think he calls it formalism uh, or you could just say honesty that, like if you think of the society and the government as a machine that uh, the parts which say they're doing X actually are. Um, and that like if, if certain institutions or people are claimed to have power that they actually do, and it's not actually other people running things um, because it's just dishonest and it also doesn't function as well, you know? So like, uh, yeah, if the Supreme court's, job is to interpret the constitution but actually that's like outsourced to like the press or the universities or something you know that that doesn't really work so um i think uh your fundamental question is very tough you know i think uh i think it, there's something appealing to people about feeling that they have uh, a say you know I think uh, maybe like boomers uh, very much buy into that vision, but I think as you get younger and younger to Gen X and, and younger generations, millennials and whoever's after them, I think they're more cynical and don't really believe in that vision. They don't believe that it's legit. Um, I don't know. Yeah. And I, I wanted to say, I, I'm not, I'm not, maybe you're more up on uh, the crypto solution thing is me i i don't really buy into that i i think it's uh my, my understanding was yarvin's idea was that uh the the state would be controlled by shareholders who had a cryptographically secure ownership of the state and then they would vote and then like put a manager like a ceo in charge or something and then the kind of like guns would be cryptographically secured using a, a, a key you know that only they could and so they could like lock all the police's guns if they don't do what they want and i 
I see this as really kind of this merchant fantasy, uh, not not a euphemism, but pe- people, you know, I think Yarvin has a lot of experience with the uh, venture capital world and Silicon Valley and, and dealing with financing investments and stuff like that. But I think it's really just this idea that you can buy and sell sovereignty is kind of the problem, is one of the problems with the, the society today. So I... I don't, and I also think there's kind of a principal agent problem, right? That the, and you can maybe correct me if I have his vision wrong, but he he's saying, oh, well, they would they would elect someone to run the state, you know, like a CEO, just like the, or they'd elect a board and then the board chooses the CEO. But the real problem is people, you know, and uh, I think that one person or someone on the board would still be kind of incentivized to try to grab power for themselves and maybe just do away with the system. So I'm kind of skeptical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. Uh, I mean, that definitely starts to dig right at like the heart of, um, of what I wanted to dive a bit deeper into because, you know, I've found, I've found Yarvin's vision to be really interesting uh, ever since I came across it, which was like less than a year ago, maybe about a year ago now. Um, yeah, it's really interesting to explore the area, but like I think you make a great point, um, you know, pointing out that like if we have these cryptographic tokens that essentially are proxies or, or the, basically the tokens hold all the power, whoever has the token has the power, um, then you have this sort of, well, part of it is you have this scary world where anyone that can like steal your token uh, can also steal that power that it holds. Um, so then there's a big, big secur- security question, uh, which is not like that's not a concern in the same sort of way in the current system. But then the bigger problem is that uh, or the harder to solve problem, I guess, is that, you know, if people can sell tokens, then it's really not this, you know, crypto democracy set up at all. At the end of the day, it's like the same sort of. Um, financial incentives that that run everything kind of behind the scenes in in a different way. Um, so I think that's a I think that's a very valid criticism. And so I guess the next question for me is then to ask, like, can we have a perfect democracy? Like, can we have a form of democracy that actually makes sense and works and is actually like better than just old school monarchy? Is there some way to make an accountability or I guess the better question is what is the optimal accountability mechanism, right? Cause old school is just like grab your torch and pit forks, uh, pitchforks and, and like right in the street. And, and like, now we have this like quote unquote democracy, which is, you know, kind of this thing that just evolves into the oligarchical, like shadow government thing sort of stuff we have now. Um, is there a way to actually make the democratic uh, accountability mechanism work well. So let me try to make an argument for that. Um, Or like, let's dig into some of the big issues here. Um, So let's start with this question. If we have every single person and let's just pretend that we can do this node work perfectly we have this system where every single person in the entire country is guaranteed 
one vote and let's just assume they will vote so we know exactly who's going to vote ahead of time and then we can verify perfectly that every single person has voted and has exactly one vote and all of those votes get tallied up and determine who is the monarch that basically holds the keys to the castle now obviously there are a lot of problems with that but I think it's interesting to just start with that question um, and, and then kind of go from there because I think the solution I'm most interested is like not all that different from that. It basically is just like that with some layers. So if we can start off by like asking even if that if that ideal sort of system is possible and we can get those sort of guarantees, would there be benefits to that or would you have like strong arguments against even that system? Um, so how long you said everyone votes and then they choose the person to be in charge and then how long would they be in charge? Just undefined indefinitely, or is that kind of a fixed term? So I was kind of thinking that, um, it would be basically until they get replaced, like the accountability mechanism would be such that like the, the keys, could be transitioned to someone else so efficiently that um, at, at least I don't see like any reason why that fundamentally couldn't be the case. So it could be like within a day, you, you, you could always have like a runner up in the queue. And then if ever like the, the monarch is doing, uh, you know, really going off the rails and like 90% of the population wants to change or, or something like that, uh, then they would get changed. And then, you know, maybe we'd, we would also have a default like maximum four years or something. I, I mean, any all, like all of those are knobs to play with if you have opinions, like let's go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, I think, I don't know if you've read Nick Land's, uh, what's it called? Dark Enlightenment book. Um, I mean, his, his thinking is based on Hop, Hoppe a lot, but um, I have a quote, if, if you want here, is um, he says, political agents invested with transient authority by multi-party democratic systems have an overwhelming and demonstrably irresistible incentive to plunder society. Um, so I think the problem with this type of system and with is that, um, you know, when you have this competition for political office with the masses and stuff, uh, people just don't want this libertarian vision where like they get left alone and they have like a clean, clean streets and nice schools or whatever people are in civics 101. Like they tend to vote for free shit, you know, and um, that that is kind of what will be selected for in the ruler. So the ruler will promise the society more of its own stuff and you'll just get higher taxes and, redistribution or money printing uh, in order to, to do this, to deliver this. And Land, I think Land has a great quote that he says, uh, you know, Rousseau has this concept of the general will of what do the people want? And he says, uh, like, the, the thing most synonymous with the general will is the legislative abolition of reality that you just promise, like, oh, yeah, you know, you have this Florida, you have this, like, house in a, next to a swamp in Florida, we'll just have federal flood insurance. And then like, 
you know, there won't be ec- any economic consequences for you for doing this. You know, and we'll, we'll just kind of throw the costs into this ether of like, you know, hundreds of millions of other people. So it's not really clear like who's being ripped off. It's just kind of this, you know, it's a tragedy of the commons. I think that I think the main problem with um, the main thing that Hop identifies is it, it goes to Manker Olson, uh, where he talks about roving bandits and stationary bandits, and that if um, you have people, you have you know some some peasant farmers, and you just have these like roving bandits, well they'll just take everything, you know, they'll, and you can call that a tax. They'll just take all of their hogs and all their crops and stuff. But if you actually have like a, a king or a tyrant, or you have someone who sets themselves up on that land, they won't take everything because they want there to be some crops for next year that they can tax and they don't want to totally decimate the people. So I think, I think Hoppe is onto something that um, these kind of transient systems, like you said, um, tend towards high time preference uh, redistribution and looting, looting society. If society's like a deer, you have like, it's just like consuming it, the ticks consuming itself. So that's my critique. Yeah. 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 For sure. For sure. Okay. So then I think the next question becomes, can we add a layer or two? I mean, Yarvin's uh, system has about three layers, I guess you could say, or like two or three between uh, the masses and the monarch right? There's the, um, the shareholders and then there's the trustees basically, right? In his system. So can you do, let's just add one layer in and look at that. So can you have, and let's just keep things super like, uh, idealized here. Um, can you have like an educated class who is like trained, uh, you know, basically educated on all of the critiques that you just made, like, Basically, they're just really aware of all the the dubious aspects of, you know, utopian narratives or like the ways in which um, people can, can be played on with their emotion and stuff like they're they're educated just in politics and, and in the whole game theory and, and all that. Can you have a class like that who basically all the masses delegate their votes to? And so the people actually making the decision of who's holding real power are more educated, they're, they're more qualified, they're playing a long-term game. And if that layer is incentivized uh, to do the long-term game, would that be enough to solve some of those issues? Um, I think it'd be a lot better. You know, I, I, think, um, I think the, like, American Republic and the, par- the parliamentary systems in Europe uh, semi worked uh, before you had like Andrew Jackson and you had, um, you know, the revolutions of, uh, I think it's 1848 that really expanded the franchise out. So I think if, if you have a more aristocratic parliament, uh, it, it can be a functional political system, I think. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting because I guess what where I would probably want to take the conversation next would be like more down the line of what's better than that or like what exactly are we sacrificing by having, you know, any amount of democracy at all? 
Um, because I think if we can safely say that like some sort of a quote unquote democratic accountability system with some amount of power to it is worthwhile, then it's worth kind of going down the rabbit hole of asking like, you know, how some of the specifics of this, uh, of how this system would work. And then I think ultimately getting an answer to whether or not like the whole crypto tech is worthwhile or not. Right. So I guess for me, I would be curious to maybe kind of throw the ball into your court and say, like, just ask straight up, like, what do you think is the best system? And I guess what specifically is are the trade-offs we're inevitably making, even with like some perfect, uh, like democratic accountability mechanism? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I guess my take isn't that there is like a best system. I guess maybe I would say a monarchy, but I think that there is something to this idea of a cycle of regimes and that um, for some reason, you know, some societies, you just, they just go through these kind of cycles. Um, and maybe, maybe it's kind of inevitable. Uh, and sorry, what was the bit on, you said the trade-off, what trade-off are we making? Yeah, well, so let's let's just look at an, an ideal monarchy. What would that look like? I think something like Liechtenstein, um, and I think we haven't we haven't talked about size at all. So I think um, I think republics. Another thing is I think republics. Uh, Spangler says republics are driven by money. Maybe even the aristocratic ones. So if you look at the republics with, which existed for a long time. You had the Venetian Republic and you had uh, Geneva, uh, you know, with with Rousseau writing all his French Enlightenment nonsense. And uh, so they're city states. Right. And they're merchant. They're of a merchant character. So I think Spangler really identifies something that if republics tend to have this merchant character or something, uh, every city has to be fed by like a hinterland. And when the money power takes control of the whole society it kind of ruins the culture uh and infuses it with that money aspect so but sorry to get to get back to the main point um so i think there was doubts when america was being created about creating a republic of this size and i I don't think it worked out um for a number of reasons but um i think that power like basically things can be more accountable and localized with just smaller political entities, which I know um, Yarvin has his patchwork idea and uh, Hoppe is really big on pushing that, that, um, you know, all the countries should leave the EU, but that isn't enough. All of the provinces should secede from the country and then all of the states and municipalities should secede from the province, you know, and basically turn Europe into, uh, I guess, the... um, like princely states or something. Uh, I think I really like that vision. I, I think people would be a lot happier uh, and safer, wealthier, more virtuous. I think it'd be better in every way. Um, okay. So I think, I yeah, think yeah, size I think... has a lot to do with it. I think trying to manage and, and that goes along with, I mean, he's talking about the United States is uh, just so much diversity of every kind becomes very difficult to manage Uh you know, even, even, uh, in the 1800s. So it becomes unworkable. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, you know, there were a bunch of good points in there for sure. Um, so I guess what I would, so I, okay, like, let's, let's kind of flesh out this vision a little bit here. So we have a fundamentally monarchical system, but we're also talking about making those monarchies be really small. Um, so, I mean, one step we could take would say, would be to say like, every single state is its own monarchy. Um, I guess, would you flesh out a bit, uh, or, or maybe even you wanted to go even to like county by county or something like that. I, I don't know exactly what uh, you think would be like the ideal level for, for like the US. Um, but if we were to do that, what would that look like? And maybe just like flesh out a bit for us, like some of the specifics of uh, Liechtenstein, um, that his monarch, his uh, monarchy vision. Um, yeah, I think Hoppe is is basically just saying that local government um, is more in tune with the re- political reality of the community, and when you have these large empires or these large, you know, just this bureaucracy, this imperial bureaucracy like the EU, uh, it just can only impose a kind of one size fits all solution. And it doesn't, it just doesn't work as well. And it's uh, dehumanizing in a sense. It's kind of like the communist system in that way. Um, just, you're, you're just governed by this large centralized bureaucracy. So um, I think pe- people will always be governed by other people as, as much as, you know, they are able to create these abstract systems and such and being governed by people more in tune with the local conditions is much better. Um, in terms of, what would that look like uh, in the U.S. or elsewhere? I think another thing would be to, um, I mean, I think the states in the United States don't really correspond to anything in political or societal reality. Um, you know, people might identify with their state or with a sports team or something, I don't know. But the, the, real, the real political division in, in every Western country is uh, urban and rural. And I think that there is a long history back to, uh, I think, uh, ancient Greece and Rome and uh, the Holy Roman Empire and, and th- for a long time of having free cities, of having cities that govern themselves and that they also then wouldn't govern the countryside. So I think ha- not having um, the city dominate the countryside is something Spangler talks about as well. But I think that is obviously a source of a lot of political disagreement and uh, that would be key, I think. Independent cities. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's it's a really interesting question to me. I would say, like, I would kind of put it under this bigger question umbrella of, like, the temptation towards centralization in general. So it seems like to me, like, if we just for just as a case study, if we were to you know, have every state be its own monarchy, which like is totally sovereign, you know, it does have neighbors, right? So it'll have relations with all the neighboring uh, monarchies, I guess, right? And then there'll be certain things they want to work out with each other. There'll be certain guarantees that they want, like the other, um, you know, sovereign uh, areas to, to be providing to each other. And so then don't you sort of inevitably have some 
some however thin layer of like a federal kind of overarching uh, governmental system uh, kind of just naturally arise to provide those guarantees? Or do you think there's some way where we can just totally get rid of that aspect of it? Um, Because it seems like to me, if you don't have some some form of that, then wouldn't there kind of inevitably be the temptation for any state that has like some economic or whatever kind of advantage to its neighbors to kind of bully them a bit and maybe ultimately kind of expand and take over them to some degree? Or like, how do you see that kind of game theory stuff playing out? Yeah, I I completely agree. And you said um, the temptation to take over is, I mean, you're just talking about the history of the Western world for the last 200 years. I mean, and now, uh, you know, it's all governed by this kind of imperial bureaucracy in D.C. Um, oh, I saw some people joined. I don't know if they want to come and speak as well. But um, on on you said that they'll depend on each other. Well, you know, I don't think that they necessarily have to be in a federation or a political union. Um, you can give an example that Singapore, when it became independent of Malaysia, they depended on them for water, importing a lot of their water. And uh, Malaysia would bully them and stuff like that. And um, then they made desalination plants so that Malaysia can't really bully them and stuff like that. But um, I don't. I think COP is a thing that, you know, you can have trade uh, and you don't have to necessarily have movement of people or have a political, you don't have to have a political union to have trade with other people. I mean, I think that's very clear from history. Um, I think you're right that there is this, this appetite among people for power and centralizing power. And uh, it's a long history of that happening. And, like I said, now it's all centralized in D.C. It's not just, you know, the U.S., but it's all these other countries that the U.S. government controls. And I think uh, everyone controlled by that is worse off for it, really, except a very small, you know, people in power. Well, you know, this is, I think, one of the benefits and, like, kind of one of the probably main forces that... um lead to more and more centralization is probably like a sense of safety. Like, you know, me growing up in the U S I've never felt like I was in danger of having a neighboring country attack, like, and put me in physical danger. Right. Whereas like this kind of monarchical patchwork system, I imagine I would be much more worried about something like that. I mean, looking back at history, um, you know, when you had contentious neighbor, neighboring, uh, sovereign, systems there you know there would definitely be violence and there's still a lot of violence today so i guess the bigger question i'm getting at is like does a centralization fundamentally reduce violence overall or um like are there benefits to it on that front yeah i think if you have um a purely defensive nature, then yeah, having more economic territory and resources makes you more powerful and stuff. Um, but I have two kind of thoughts or counterpoints, not, not counter, but thoughts is, um, I mean, the first is I think there's kind of 
like if you if you think everything is in flux you know then um that it, there's kind of like a spending down or there's a um uh, what is it? Hop has an essay called The Paradox of Imperialism, which is that the most economically liberal states tend to expand because, uh, you know, having low taxes and property rights makes makes you strong and wealthy. And then when you become this big empire, when you become centralized, the tendency is to exploit and, and raise taxes and uh, not do the same economic liberalism, because like you said, you don't have to compete, you know, so it... Um, it makes you, I guess, it makes the elites just uh, loot, loot more. Uh, but then the other thing is, you know, being part of a large political union, like, does it make you safer, whatever? Uh, I mean, in the United States, being part of the U.S. didn't stop America from entering, like, World War One or World War II. And I think both of those were not in the interest of the American people to enter. I don't think America was uh, threatened. And the elites decided, um, just like you were saying, this this uh, tendency to want to, you know, just conquer other lands, it didn't stop them from drafting Americans to fight in these wars. So, yeah, okay. So this is maybe kind of a far out question, but I think like with recent AI developments, maybe more and more people are asking it, and also just with like how powerful kind of the the globalized system has become like it's worth touching on the question of like what would the world look like if there truly was a global system to the point where war was just entirely made obsolete and would that in any way address um kind of the looting issue because like maybe there's less incentive to loot when there's not really any adversaries to what am I getting at? Um, like, I feel like I I would counter you'd have, you'd have a really exploitive government because the state wouldn't have to compete for, uh, you know, smart, hardworking people or for businesses. So they, they wouldn't be able to relocate at all, you know, so you'd have a really exploitive state. I, I think it's having smaller political uh, entities, which can really protect people from an overbearing, you know, global sovereign. Do you think or not? Not so much. No, no. I mean, I definitely 100% agree with that criticism. I just think it's worth asking the question, like, do, do things become fundamentally different when you like pass an inflection point in size where you're actually the global empire like in full rather than um like like as you know when we see these bureaucracies grow there are um you know we see these issues with that but does it fundamentally change the game theoretics of it when you're talking about literally the entire globe being under one system does that fundamentally change anything I, i think it changes something but um, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to propose that, like, that's the answer here. Uh, I just think it's worth touching on that question when we're, like, talking about this stuff. Yeah, I mean, um, like I said, I, I would think that the larger the political entity and the less threat it has from external enemies, uh, the more tendency that you get a kind of brittle society of incumbent interests 
which is very much in the case of the United States, the economy is just like cartelized and, and made into an oligarchy. And um, I think also if you look at like Europe versus China, this is one of the reasons Europe was successful because you had different principalities and you had different monarchs who feared for their own position. And so, um, you know, China has always used its large absolute size to, uh, and, and if you have incumbent interests, you're not really forced to adopt, let's say, new technologies or other new ways of doing things. So it makes you stagnant and, and not innovative. And uh, whereas if, if you have to worry about like the prince over the hill or something, you can't just be like, oh, you know, I'm going to I'm going to crush this invention. I'm going to do this because uh, I have this like uh, incumbent interest, you know, you it creates a kind of vigor uh, in society, I think is really positive. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's my, that's like, that would be my main counter argument to that too. And I talk a lot about like utopianism and just criticizing that and just recognizing the value of, of competition and stuff and, and just the inevitability of conflict as well. If you're not fighting with someone else, you're fighting with, you know, your friends and your family or you're like having a battle in your own mind sort of thing. So like if we did have some global society where, you know, there is no physical violence whatsoever, well, there would still be conflict. Like we would all be wrestling with our own demons and stuff like that. And I think honestly, like that's kind of my diagnosis of what's going on uh, with our modern system to a large degree. So I don't think like, I think a lot of those problems only get worse and worse with that system. And I think you end up, probably having a result where, you know, huge swaths of people are like, yeah, this is broken. Let's, you know, let's riot and, 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 uh, they resort to physical violence. So, um, I do see that. And I think maybe at this point we've looped back around to, uh, wanting to investigate a little, uh, deeper into the question of like, can we have this idyllic, um, kind of perfect democracy, empowered by like a crypto tech sort of system like is there some way or maybe put that question to the side well no i think i want to dig into that like because i think the the tech does seem to make some new things possible or at least just some new possibilities for efficiency and so i think it's worth exploring that um how do you feel about going that direction uh, yeah, I, I think we can we can touch on it. Um, I guess I'll say I'm more skeptical, uh, you know, overall. Yeah, so actually, at this point, I'd love to have HDP come up and, and chat with us as well, because this is directly, um, you know, tagging on to the previous conversation we had. So trying to get you up here as a speaker, my dude, or even as a co-host. Here, I'll send you both there. But maybe he'll come up. Hopefully he'll come up in a bit here because he knows more about crypto tech than I do. And we had a great conversation before. So nice. Hello. Hey, hey. Glad to have you up here, man. Yo, what's up? What's up? What's up? How's it going, man? Pretty good. Just, just kind of listening while, you know, reading some shit. And... uh you know, just chilling, basically. I was doing some housework, so I was resting. 
Sweet. Um, well, hopefully you uh, you want to jump in on some of this stuff because I'm going to basically be um, talking about things like highly related to the previous conversation we had. So um, please do uh, chime in whenever you want to on this stuff. Yeah, I kind of want to hear what <clears throat> you guys are going to say in counter to each other with one kind of supporting the techno, you know, like not necessarily idealist perspective but that there is a fundamental new element that technology gets gets you versus the skepticism i'm kind of interested to see where you guys go with that so if i well no let me yeah or sorry i was just gonna say if i do uh want to say something i I'll, I'll, i will but i'll be listening yeah i was gonna say uh i guess it's it's uh I'm not saying that the technology won't get us something new. Uh, I'm saying it'll get us nothing good. So I, I think Yarvin's vision of, um, you know, you don't know who rules you. It's just people who have these crypto shares of the state, you know, and uh, they can lock down all the guns and, you know, they, they will, uh, you know, just elect someone to rule over you. It's it's a very dystopian vision. It's it's very uh, very objectable. I think it, it's wicked, and uh, I like I said, I think it feeds this kind of merchant idea. Again, not a euphemism, but this merchant idea that oh, well, I can just like buy sovereignty and like boss people around because I have all this money, you know. And uh, so I don't I don't like this vision where the state is controlled by people who own crypto tokens and then they just sell them to each other I, I think it's whack and if you look at if you look at the contrast of what i'm proposing which is obviously an idealized situation which i i don't think is in store for the united states or many places of Liechtenstein, is uh you know you don't need any of this like secret merchants whatever holding your your sovereignty is uh you can just go like have a beer with the prince you know they have a holiday and you can talk to him uh, it's it, it's it's completely better. Uh, yeah. If you have a response to that HCP, um, I'd love to hear it. I I think it's pretty valid criticism. Uh, at least, it, well, the main point that that I think is really interesting that Ronald's making is like about you know being able to sell tokens and how that sort of ultimately devolves into a similar sort of just oligarchical kind of shadow government system that that we have right now so i'm going to propose a different version that like you know takes some of the elements that i think are interesting about yarvin's vision and then you know goes a bit of a di different direction with it but if you had any responses to to what ronald was saying there i would definitely be curious like if you think maybe it's not as big of a problem as as he sees it to be yeah, my only real response to that is that um, when it comes to systems that are enabled through technology and considering how they might be affecting people, that it's really hard to predict, um, for one, but also for most importantly, for two, the range of possible systems is so large that at this point to consider any one system designed to be effective i think is kind of like like uh, intellectually dishonest in a way so i wouldn't necessarily 
like want to support one person's um, method over another. But um, I do think that there are certain challenges that you might be downplaying that arise in when you have small groups trying to um, reach a, you know, a equilibrium point. But I, I, I love that you offer that as a counter because it's like the perfect, you know, the, the perfect polarity between <clears throat> tons of little micro states, basically, versus like a centralized system. And um, I, I like to explore technology along that whole range of, of polarities, right? Of that polarity, like between centralization and extreme, you know, microstates and such. I think that it's worthwhile to explore technology in a lot of different models and not just, you know, like, okay, for example, you say, oh, we're going to elect the monarch with our crypto tokens, right? I, I think that that is a very primitive way to talk about it where we're just trying to bring you know terms to these these concepts that we're seeing and that you know we we don't even fully have the language to describe what we're trying to manage and govern is is the reality and to 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 go to tokens and you know state shares and these types of concepts i think is is a little premature because whatever the definition of those things are it's going to be incredibly complex um so you know, there's my run-on response, which is that it, you can never know what will really happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, I, I feel you. So, yeah, so Ronald and I had, like, kind of started to talk about this already. Um, like, what might a kind of idyllic um, crypto-empowered, you know, maybe or maybe not, but just, like, an idyllic, democratically empowered monarchy be so like what's the perfect accountability mechanism basically just treating democracy uh democracy as as the accountability mechanism or part of the accountability mechanism and i i mean it seemed like uh ronald was somewhat interested in you know playing around with the idea of basically if you assume um actually let me go ahead and just go down this rabbit hole for a minute here um, so the way that it seems like it would have to work for me is starting at the voting level. Um, every single person has a vote, right? And we need, we want to be able to verify that every single person gets one and only one vote, right? We want to completely eliminate fraud and ideally eliminate all potential for fake votes, uh, being slipped in anywhere in the system. It seems to me that that might be feasible to do at least well, like well enough that it would be significantly better than what we're currently doing. Um, and so I, I guess I want to start by just looking at that and then kind of build a system on that. Cause if that doesn't make sense, then I don't think any of this makes sense, but it seems to me like what we could do is have people come in in person um, and be and basically registered as a voter, like as a valid citizen, right? And you might only have to do this once in your life. So in person, we have some complex, you know, biometric validation, some sort, stuff like that. And then I don't see it as completely unfeasible to get to a point where we can have enough, like biometrics just on every single smartphone, such that 
let's just assume every single person that's going to vote has a smartphone and can, um, you know, verify that they are a valid registered citizen voter um, when they do go into vote. And so we can expect, we can basically guarantee how many people are going to vote before they vote. And we can feel assured that, you know, all those people are real people and should have a vote. Right. So I guess I want to start with that question. Like, what are the biggest holes in that system that y'all would see? Because I pointed out a few and it doesn't seem to me that we can't like overcome them pretty well. Um, but I wonder if like, do we just never get past some of those issues? Well, I, I could say, uh, I mean, it obviously be more secure than what the United States does today. Um, but you're still relying on technology and technology is deterritorialized. So someone in another country could hack people's phones, hack a lot of phones. Uh, you have like the people reading about the Israel black cube people. They could just hack anything, you know, on phones. So, um, I mean, I guess here's the, here's my critique is like, it seems like, Maybe in a bigger country, right? A big country that would be would beat this. But I guess what I'd say is like Singapore has elections where um, it's in-person voting with government-issued photo ID and paper ballots only. And if there's a problem, you can just recount the paper ballots, you know. Um, and to me, it seems harder to fake. It seems harder to hack because only people in Singapore could hack it. So you, I don't know, there wouldn't be someone in another country hacking it. And how is that not technology? Well, it's paper ballots in person. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely still a form of technology, right? I mean, any government... Well, I'm sorry, it's not internet. Like, it's not it's not internet yeah. Uh, yeah, connected, and, I guess. I mean, there's well, also the like point... the psychotechnology level. The, the point the point is that in any voting system, there's going to be an error rate due to fraud or some type of problem. You, you can't have a perfect. Well, you, you, you assume that you can't have a 100 percent perfect system. So you're always going to have some type of error rate. That's kind of, you know, my only thing about paper is that, yeah, it's 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 uh, harder to hack in some ways, but it's also easier to hack in others, depending on what scale you're you know operating upon the system from from within a part of the community it seems like it would be harder to hack but from the outside it seems like it would be maybe a little easier to hack you know i think where is the hacking really taking place in the people's minds or in the voting structure well yeah i mean that's a question we haven't gotten to yet definitely get gonna get there soon but when it comes to paper ballots i mean someone is counting those ballots right you have humans in the loop that have to be trusted on some level right and that's one of the things that blockchain that basically is what blockchain overcomes is every single person has their own uh account of every single other person's vote and they get it at the same time um, and, and it's verifiable uh, on a whole other level. You, there's no point in the system where, you know, someone can sneak votes in, right? 
Now, you may say, well, that's not true because somebody can, you know, retroactively still insert fake votes into the um, into the electronic system. Um, but that's that's so that gets to what I was proposing earlier, which is basically to have all registered voters kind of predetermined so you can know how many votes you're expecting and have like a pretty good guarantee of like how many total votes there should be and a pretty good guarantee that every single one of those votes does belong to a valid citizen. And then presumably, like if someone were to hack somebody's phone um, and, you know, vote on their behalf, then that could be contested. And I mean, I would hope there's, I mean, this gets into all the nitty gritty of like, you know, how does, how does Bitcoin work? Well, I mean, it seems to work well enough that people have like shit tons of money in it. So like, you know, these systems are somewhat tested out, but maybe some people would make an argument that there's like still a backdoor even in Bitcoin. Um, I don't know. I mean, do y'all have thoughts on that front? I mean, you said that it's, it's a technology which solves the problem of social trust. Um, but it seems to me like that's kind of a band-aid of dealing with the underlying problem, which is the collapse of social trust in society. So to me, it's almost like what the current regime is doing where you have like, you know, locking stuff up at stores and we're just going to use these like uh, technology solutions to deal with the fact we have a dysfunctional society. So to me, I feel like the like it's just like this bandaid over the social trust problem, um, which means I don't know. Well, just put it out, out there. OK, Ronald. But, but I, I think the the system I'm proposing is basically trying to minimize social trust across the like entire political spec spectrum between the monarch and the citizens. Right. So like you can you can move that social trust issue up or down the hierarchy. But I think the question is like, how do you minimize it overall? And if we can have like uh, the, the argument I'm trying to lay out, I don't know where I land on it, but what I'm trying to lay out is like, we may be able to have a system where these, you know, crypto tools help minimize that across the board. So, um, and I, I mean, we have to talk about the whole system before we can like really answer that question in full. Right. Um, Cause we're really just ta talking about the very bottom layer of it right now. Can we get like a better guarantee on voting? Your criticism is, well, you know, you're, I mean, basically the way I'm reading it is you're saying it doesn't matter that like with paper ballots, you have to trust people higher up because, you know, this is just a band aid for like not being able to trust people at all. But then the thing is, like, if you look at that all the way at the top, you're saying, you know, the ultimate issue with this stuff is that you can't trust the monarch in such a system because they're going to exploit uh, as much as possible. Right. So there's there's always that trust issue. Um, and I think the question is, like, what layer is it at? Um, OK, so I guess I'll just keep digging a bit farther into this so like let's just say we can make this crypto voting system that gives us much much better still not perfect obviously because you're depending on every single citizen to 
play their part and like some might not. So there might be a few votes that get hacked or whatever here and there. But let's say like overall the system works really, really well. So we have a much, much more confidence that people, you know, people's voices are getting heard essentially, right? The votes are going to where the sender intended them to go. That's, you know, there are a number of benefits, including everyone can just vote, you know, from wherever they are on their phone, right? That's part of the idea. So like, that means you don't have the bias towards the people who are like, especially wanting to put in the extra effort to go vote or whatever, which I think can be really significant uh, in some, in some contexts. So let's just assume that's kind of a good thing, or we want everyone to have a vote. um, And then we can talk about like weighting people's votes in the next layer. So then the next layer that we talked about is basically the issue that you brought up that Ronald brought up. um, I'm going to reword it is basically like, well, if you have, you know, basically ignorant citizens voting directly in who's the monarch well the monarch is going to uh actually why don't you rework this part for us because i feel like you were much more eloquent on your criticism of that system of mass democracy well yeah so we talked about adding in the layer in the middle right but like your criticism that got us to that point um yeah, I mean, it's just that most people don't care about uh, political issues. Um, Papa's a good quote here. He says, what is true, just, and beautiful is not determined by popular vote. And the masses everywhere are ignorant, short-sighted, motivated by envy, and easy to fool. And the Democratic politicians who must appeal to these masses that the best demagogue will win and that democracy will lead to the perversion of truth, justice, and beauty. So, I mean, yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't think it works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. I'm, gl- I'm glad I asked you to, to answer that because that was much better than what I, my description was going to be. Okay. So considering that criticism, now we take, now we put another layer into the system, right? Instead of the citizens directly voting in the monarch, we have, uh, I guess, I don't know, would you even call it an aristocracy? We have like a class of people who are dedicated to being educated on the nuance of like political game theory, all that sort of stuff, right? They, they're they well aware of the dubious nature of utopian visions and they're well aware of like how easy it is for narratives to control people. So they're going to have long-term incentives. They're going to want, they're going to be the people who actually choose the monarch and they're going to be the ones who actually hold the monarch accountable towards doing what's best in their eyes um, for the society as a whole in the long run. So you don't have this monarch with a totally unaccountable temptation to just convince the masses to do, you know, let them be exploited essentially. Right. So that's better. Um, I guess, how do we feel about that at this point? So uh, actually let me flesh it a little, a little bit more. So the, the basic idea is everyone is guaranteed to vote. The crypto system does actually help with that. And this is fundamentally why, you know, blockchain technology is valuable is because it does actually, make that part of the system better in very real ways. And then basically you have all the citizens delegating their votes to this um, 
political class. You could call them shareholders. Like in Yarvin's vision, they're called shareholders, but they wouldn't be shareholders. They would be people who have been, you know, vetted and educated and, and like qualified to, to play that role. So then they are the ones who actually make the vote of who's going to be the monarch. Right. And then um, basically the monarch could be switched out in a pretty short time frame. Like if, if the, I guess it would, I guess the time frame would maybe be dependent on like what percentage of that educated class uh, thinks they should be replaced. Like if, you know, 90% of them agree they should be replaced, then probably they could do that like in a day and just like hand the keys to the castle over to the next guy in line. Um, and so then another part of the assumption would be there would always be like a next guy in line who, um, so basically people are like voting maybe even every day as to like who the next guy in line should be. Um, and then potentially the monarch could be switched out within the timeline of, a day or a week or a month, like something a lot shorter than four years, but then maybe by default, it would be every four years or something like that. So I guess, how do we feel about this system? Because to me, it does seem like a strictly better version of the one we have in the US right now in a lot of ways. Uh, I mean, there's probably a lot more nuance to it, but. I, I have some comments on that whole direction, but it it really ties back to what Ronald was saying earlier about the social trust and um, the breakdown of social trust. And, you know, this critique of mercantilism as a force that kind of destroys culture, I think, is, is very valid. And um, it speaks to something that is really um, powerful and, like, human like experience that is not really part of the conversation like in in a modern giant empire like america there's not really much culture is is kind of what i'm saying <laughs> like like uh having a mercantile mer like a culture based off commerce is different than having a culture based off like existence in like a sustained way and you know you look at the growth rates of <clears throat> let's just say times when there's, you know, more social trust, systems with more tr social trust. You, you look at the growth rates of those economies and they're generally much more tame. So there's a lot to be said about this whole discussion about um, social trust. And the reason I wanted to say something about social trust is that when we look at a vote, right, we, we have this, this hierarchy of, of voting from, you know, the, the educated who, you know, would create the executive system. They're the ones voting for the executive central system, right? This hierarchy of the vote, what is it really trying to accomplish? And I think that the reason we, that democracy fails a lot is when you put, you know, these critiques on it is that we're not really measuring the right thing, right? We're using the vote to try to what? See what people want? No, no, no. What we're really trying to do, I think, is we're trying to, it's like we're yearning for the social trust that used to exist fluidly when we have an actually functioning society that has, um, like, you know, the, uh, uh, I don't want to idealize it, but you can kind of see when a, a human group is like functioning fluidly in some type of task or purpose, you can, you can like, you can, you can see the coordination happening naturally without much effort or conflict. Like, 
It's something you can recognize really, you know, obviously. And in that type of domain, there is a form of social trust that exists. And I think a lot of what voting really is, is when you scale up the group, you're like, you're trying to still carry on that social trust. Like, what is it made out of? And here's, and here's where it ties into blockchain, because the social trust is based off of communication. And communication is based off of the, the, the form of information that you're sharing with each other through, you know, art and behavior and sound and everything, right? So there is these mediums of information that exist first, and then structures like social trust get built on top of those. And a lot of times they tie into each other and, you know, have these feedback loops where they, you know, they're obviously entwined to, to create themselves and millions of iterations over time. But the, the point being is that the vote is an attempt to have a form of communication amongst a large group of people. It's, it's an attempt at a coordination for a large scale. And that attempt of communication is to try to mimic what used to exist with social trust. That's, that's kind of my, my point here is that the vote is not just about what people want to do. The vote is its, its main goal should be to try to access the, the reality of social trust that exists between people and then reflect that to scale. Do you see what I mean? So, because here's, here's something to note when, when you talk about the scale, right? So you could say, Ronald, and you, you'll know more about this than me because I'm not so much a political theorist like that. But when you have a smaller system, it's easier to have social trust. Um, I think that's a general rule that you could kind of assume about them. So when you scale it up, it breaks down. Well, if we're going to ask ourselves, why does it break down when we scale it up? You could go on many reasons about like the dramas and histories of people and why. But I would say you look at it from a purely information perspective, which is that the information becomes uh, too fragmented and, and the, the, the encoding that exists between a small group does not translate well into a large group for all of the nuance of communication. And so you have this totally different set of communication data where the conversation is a totally different form. It is no longer the same type that exists in a social trust situation and under those conditions you you don't necessarily have a bad thing is kind of what i'm getting at is that maybe there is a way to scale up social trust in 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 that this whole conversation about you know trustless systems and these other types of you know concepts they might actually be part of something that increase could increase social trust in the end in, in some weird way. And I think this is what Fawn was saying earlier about, you know, the technology scaling up is that maybe there's some type of inflection point or whatever, but we, we have to really kind of look at it from what is, what are, what are our systems really trying to accomplish? And I'd say it's, it's attempting to communicate and, and, and process information and, you know, chain it up the system. And, if we look at it from that point of view, then what we really want to know is we want to know what is um, what information actually exists without like a filter, like as little bias as possible. Right. And this is, you know, the whole biometrics thing and 
like go ahead and try to prevent civil attacks. You'll never be able to do it by the way. Um, but I just, I, I, I really kind of empathize with the, the whole <laughs> anti mercantile mer- merchant based um, culture critique. It, it's, you know, it has a lot of like, you know, emotional feelings of like, you know, connectedness and you, you can see how these, how these cultures kind of destroy um, local or these, these merchant merchant systems kind of destroy local culture. And, you know, there's a lot to be said about that, about the global empire too, and, you know, how information scales. And I think that we should not just look at it as we're trying to enter a trustless system that's purely, mer- you know, based on trading shares of power, but that we're, we have we have this technology that might be able to be used to create a new form of information that we can look at to understand more so where the social trust actually exists i guess is kind of what i'm saying <laughs> yeah i mean i think you made a bunch of really good points there um and ronald if you want to speak on any of that please come up here but i just wanted to kind of ask like i'm really interested in digging into like a specific example on that front like can we do you have like one specific idea maybe in contrast to the the outline i've been laying which is really just trying to take the system we have and make it more efficient in a number of ways like it's a pretty i feel like a pretty non-ambitious goal but yeah okay okay perfect perfect yeah thanks thanks for reminding me because i actually did and I started initially with a with an idea for how the technology would exist, and then I thought about it for a bit, and that's where my rant came from. But yeah, here's an example, right? So you have this system with biometrics where everyone has a a, a more verified vote. Let's just leave it at that, and um, and you can now vote wherever you ex- wherever you are. You can vote instantly, and then you at first you know you might say, oh, that's not a good idea, and I totally agree with that. But then if we if we change the whole concept, con, uh, conversation, or um, the lens of what the vote is, now people aren't just voting on, you know, to increase taxes. They're not voting on, you know, executive actions, right? Now they're voting on a whole new range of possibilities that might create this whole different structure of how the hierarchy, um, the, the layers in- interact with each other, right? <clears throat> so, what if you know your the, the vote is the voting eventually becomes a sentimental analysis, right? That's that if it's frequent enough, you might be able to build a structure of like electing on top of it that is more sensitive, but kind of has a similar structure to what we have currently. So that. Um, I don't know if this is 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 an example in your eyes, but this is what. I saw initially, which was that you use you use the biometrics, and then your whole concept of voting changes. And you're not just getting people to vote on if they want to increase the taxes or if they want to, you know, do this with the system or whatever. But you're voting to gather information, essentially. And what if you force people? I don't want to. I'm going off on these rants now, but the whole idea is you need more information. Right. Because that's what you get in the small community. You have the you can really be um, communicating in high resolution, like in high bandwidth with the people around you. And 
So that's kind of what we might be able to do if, if we have the biometric votings, then it, we can we can change the whole concept of what a vote really is. Right. And we can show, you know, we can show sentiment in a whole different way. Like if, if we create a culture where we where we trust the representation of a sentiment in real time and it just, you know, that's the real challenge is how do you get people to care about fucking politics? <laughs> if we can create a culture where people can observe a national sentiment that they trust, I think that would be a really good um, addition to kind of explore this, con- this, this concept of social trust. Because yeah. right now, the surveys don't exist. Like, data is fucking not reliable, and I don't think it'd be trusted. I can I can push back on this a little. I I, I don't want to be uh, you know a dick because I think you have a lot of good ideas, but um, I would say that um, social trust is not based on communication because I think social trust because in in a lot of like multicultural cities you have a lot of communication now maybe people aren't talking about their real opinions so you could say you don't have real communication but in these areas you have very low social trust. I think social trust is created by a shared world outlook, uh, whether that's religious or you could say political or whatever, and shared goals. Uh, and and democracy, not democracy, diversity is antithetical to social trust. Uh, and so, you know, I, I'll also push back on the idea. So that's what I want to say with that is, um, you know, you guys it seems like you both don't really want the people voting to have any influence on what happens because then you want them to elect like the actual aristocrats, whatever you just want democracy as this legitimacy mechanism that like, Oh, you should accept. Why should you accept this government and this regime? It's like, Oh, cause it's democratic, you know? And maybe, I don't know, maybe that's all the United States can do because it's founded as a liberal project, but I'm not a liberal. So uh, yeah, you just, just, just for the record here, I don't believe in any one system. I'm more interested in models themselves of governance. So I'm not like voting yeah, yeah. for, for the system. I'm just like, I like to explore the different potential models, especially when it comes to decentralized crypto-based shit. You know, yeah, sorry if I stuff. sorry if I misspoke. No, no, no. I just wanted to make sure that I, that I let you know that. But please be, be a dick. I love to be countered in criticism. Like, I, I like that you, well, you mentioned that counter to um you know it's not communication it's about the shared the shared goal yeah and i mean i don't know how yarvin reads schmidt and doesn't talk or acknowledge this this issue is people will not agree to outcomes if they're decided democratically of you know 52 percent outvoting the 48 whatever um on existential issues and conflicts and you know, what are existential issues and conflicts caused by is diversity. So, you know, we had a 30 years war of Protestants versus Catholics because they couldn't agree. And neither side, if they had a a vote, would accept, oh, well, you know, you won the election, so that's the way it's going to be. It's an existential disagreement. And I think more and more people in the United States are of this mindset about certain issues. Um, and so that's that's a real puzzle. And I don't think democracy can really solve that. Um, and I'll also push back on the notion that uh, there's this this conflict between social trust and economic growth. 
Because if you think there's some time in the past when the United States had higher social trust, um, I guarantee you there was higher economic growth at that time. Um, and so I think social trust uh, lowers trans. Oh, someone's requesting. Okay, uh, social trust lowers transaction costs because um, it basically makes it so people are more likely to assume the other person isn't going to screw them. Uh, and so it, it lowers information costs, information search costs that you don't have to kind of research the person you're doing business with or whatever. You just assume like that they're not going to screw you over. Um, so I think you said it. social trust breaks down when you scale it up. I'm not sure if it's really the scale so much as the diversity really of um, different things, which really breaks the social trust because you have countries which are pretty big, which have pretty high social trust because, you know, um, and I think this is the origin of democracy. Like, like I said, it's easy to, uh, I think Keith Woods or someone is the thing of saying like, it's easy if you're sitting in England and, uh, you know, everyone has similar ethnic background. Everyone is a member of the Church of England. Everyone has all these things in common to think like, well, yeah, of course we can like have a debate about like, you know, how this, how this, the roads should be designed, you know, or what color traffic light we should have. Like, yeah, if you agree on all of the big things, you know, but um, so I think I really doubt. Yeah. Those, those points is, um, I think social trust is based on a shared like world outlook. Like look at like Amish people, you know, um, they have high social trust and they all have a similar kind of goals. You know, they all want to buy a farm. They all want to, you know, have kids, whatever, uh, worship God and they have high social trust. So I think social trust facilitates economic growth and, um, the, the increasing diversity of different things like, you have Chris, you have Muslims in Sweden. They want to ban uh, criticizing Muhammad or whatever. You know that's a that's an existential conflict, and I don't think they obviously don't accept your liberal value of well, the Swedish people voted that they can ban Muhammad, they can burn the the Quran or whatever. You know, they're burning down shit. You know, so I question that. Yeah, I mean, I have a couple thoughts here, like, in response to what Ronald was saying just there, um, I guess I would kind of bring it back to the global question, like, do we ever over overcome those issues? Or are we is there just, I mean, for me, the answer is no. But like, I guess, maybe the more nuanced question would be like, what's the ideal way to deal with the inevitable conflict between diverse groups? Uh, like, like, how does that, how does that point actually fit into helping us understand what the ideal governance system would be? I don't know if someone else wants to chime in, but I would say, um, don't make, don't try to force people who don't want to hang out to hang out, um, because they can just freely choose not to. And I think it's tyrannical to do so, but I don't know if someone else has, uh, yeah, I got an answer to this. You need you need a frontier that is incredibly hostile that anybody can go to at any time, because those types of um, environments they can handle diversity better, and it allows people to be able to form their own dynamic communities whenever they want outside of what exists currently. 
And without the space to form, you know, these types of structures, I think that diversity can become it can become an issue in a, in a system that already exists. Absolutely. But, you know, it's 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 a, it's a really fascinating subject, honestly. And but I think that the key is to, you need a front you need a frontier of some type. Like you need something that is ultra high risk, but high reward that allows people to that they can choose to go to, like with just their, you know, their own choice. Like they don't need any other types of credentials and they'll like find work. Basically, you need some type of place like that. And I don't think that really exists anymore. So long story short is you need to colonize space. <laughs> that's how you have that's how you have a global society that is aligned is you need some big mission. <laughs>